Hello and welcome to this new Mandala podcast, number three in a series on a new Malaysia. And that's a new Malaysia with a question mark. I'm Liam Gammon, I'm the editor of New Mandala. And today we're going to go into a little bit more detail on that question mark. We've got a conversation with one of Malaysia's most senior academics, Professor Shamsul A.B., who talks about, among other things, some of the ideological constraints that'll guide the new government just as much as the old, particularly those to do with the role of race and religion in Malaysian society. That's in the second half of this podcast. First, though, we talk to Bridget Welsh, who's Associate Professor of Political Science at John Cabot University, where her research specialises in contemporary Malaysian politics. She'll share her thoughts on some of the specific institutional barriers that might hold up change in Malaysia. Before we get started, I'll just note that this podcast is being produced with the support of the Malaysia Institute at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Here's my interview with Associate Professor Bridget Welsh. Bridget, thanks very much for making the time. Nice to see you, Liam. Glad to be here. So you spoke at the ANU about 10 days after GE14 and you closed on this note that, uh, you know, despite all the uncertainties, you remained cautiously optimistic about what the, uh, what the future held for Malaysia. Now, as we're speaking here, we're about two months after the election. The government started making decisions, they started making appointments and pretty soon they'll start legislating as well. So how has your uh, optimism fared? I think I'm still on the same tune. I think we see good reasons for uh, for optimism. We've seen some structural reforms in terms of reorganization of government departments. We've seen placements and appointees that are based on kind of more incorporation of multi-ethnic actors, a lot more talent in the cabinet uh, than in the past. At the same time, I think there is a lot to be said to be, and reasons to be cautious. Um, and that I think uh, it's very difficult to change things overnight. Uh, this is a government that has very high expectations. Uh, and there, a lot of these things are happening at a relatively slow pace. A lot of the things are happening behind the scenes. And there have been some uh, mixed signals that have been sent um, in terms of issues of um, <clears throat> associated with patronage, uh, issues associated with uh, uh, a kind of uh, clarity of purpose. Um, I think uh, one of the real areas of caution has to do with what's happening in the economy. Uh, I think uh, many Malaysians are very happy with the removal of the goods and service tax, uh, but there are concerns about what's next and where the economy is going to move. Well, we should be fair and say that there is a quite large group of real reformist activists within this government. It remains the case that most of the politicians involved with this new government are essentially rebranded, are no politicians, not least the Prime Minister himself. So in a sense, would you say it's a fair criticism to say that this is essentially an old style, I'm no government, rebranded? I think that's not a fair assessment. I think we do see, uh, you know, roughly 20% of the cabinet and others are coming from this Amno brand. I think there are clearly other actors within that who have worked in Amno in PKR, for example, uh, that have Amno, Amno DNA practices, uh, aka the politics of patronage. Uh, but I would also say that there are uh, a tremendous, the overwhelming majority of those in the cabinet uh, so far are uh, are people who are reform minded and who are have a very good clean record uh, in that process uh, at least at this particular juncture uh, but 
you know, the problem with these issues of patronage government and the issues of corruption uh, come from the system itself. It's not just the politicians. And I think what's the real test as we see ahead is what type of mechanisms they're going to put in place to strengthen uh, the issues associated with uh, stopping corruption. We've seen uh, consistent calls on the part of Mahathir and leadership to recognize this and issues of asset protection, asset declaration. I think we're at, the more mechanisms that are put in place now are really positive. So we do see, uh, I think, uh, real pressure, a real change from within the system, at least at this juncture. But I think there are two other very important checks that are that I think uh, cannot be underestimated. One is, uh, while there the reformists, some of them are in the are in the opposition in the new government, but the reformists still are outside as a pressure group. Uh, so we still have civil society being uh, active and putting pressure on the new government. And then the most important check is the people with expectations from, the, from, the, from ordinary Malaysians. They're going to expect shifts and changes. Uh, and uh, you know, it's, gonna, it's gonna come from their base. And I think this government is conscious that they're going to have to appease their political base with some sets of out, outcomes. You brought up the example of this reform committee, which of course is a, a group of very high-profile civil society leaders that are giving input to the new government, uh, at least notionally, on issues of uh, political reform. This is also accompanied by this so-called Council of Eminent Persons, which is all about reforming the economy. The question really is, how much of this is window dressing? How much of this is really an attempt by the new government to get a real reform program going? Well, I think one has to, to start with the recognition that they've come in to deal with a mess. And that mess, the classic example of that, that epitomizes that, is the issue of 1MDB. So this government has been heavily focused on 1MDB as an investigation. The focus has been largely on the issues of the money trail. Uh, and that has kind of become the entree point for issues associated with reform. Uh, and they, it speaks to issues of corruption, it speaks to issues of governance and the financial position of the government, that, uh, and it is something very fundamental and it's also connected to the electoral campaign. They have yet to move into other areas, uh, in part because they're dealing with the legacy issues. And part of that legacy issues is to deal with individuals within the government uh, who supported a system that was heavily based on the graft and practices that was happening beforehand. So there is a sense of transition. Uh, many uh, important secretary generals are being removed, huh? and it didn't happen right away. It's been phased out over a period of months. So you can see uh, that there have been considerable mo movement in, in people. Uh, it's still probably not enough. Uh, in terms of shifting the, the, the management and changing the implementation mechanisms, but it is something that is that is started. Uh, do, as your question implied, does this mean that there are real substantive changes in moving the economic direction? Probably not yet. Um, 
I think uh, the only major issue that has been raised is Mahathir's pet issue, and that is the car, the car, the car. And I think within the government, there are very different views on the car. Uh, and I This think is, of course, for, for those unfamiliar with the issue, we're talking about the Proton. Yes, the national car. Um, I, but I would also say that there are differences of opinion on issues of trade, there are differences of opinions on issues of what sectors in the economy should be given uh, priority. Uh, that I think from right now until September, they're working to formulate a government budget that is seen to have confidence in areas associated with uh, revenue building. Uh, so I think that generally, I, I'm, this goes back to my overall thread tread and that is issues associated with cautious optimism. Uh, they are acknowledging the problems and they're trying to tackle the problems. Uh, but they're choosing to only focus on certain problems as opposed to others. You alluded to people within the system who don't want change and uh, one thing that really makes me think of is the bureaucracy and the leadership of these state institutions. because. One major theme of scholarship on Malaysian politics has been the extent to which all of these state institutions, be it the bureaucracy, the security services and so on, were really subordinated to the will of the party, in specifically uh, Barisan Nasional and UMNO. Now that Barisan Nasional is gone, what kind of, uh, I guess, cooperation and or interference is Pakatan getting? I mean, can we talk about the Malaysian deep state, for instance? Absolutely. There's no question that there is a deep state here, and I, and I think that became obvious in the minute period after the elections where they talked about ME10, the big intelligence agency that uh, was connected to Najib's office uh, and who was, in, was perceived to be in charge of multiple operations that were connected to uh, to protecting the, his, his, his administration and actors in his administration, including over 1MDB. Uh, but I would say that we have seen announcements of, of reform within the police force. And there are some announcements happening in the areas of immigration. Uh, these are critical agencies of the government, uh, not only in that they deal with issues of rule of law, but they are also where many of the problems of corruption and the illegal economy are perceived to be based. So this restructuring is, I think, somewhat bold, relatively early. Uh, the details of that restructuring has not been fully released. Uh, and I think there are concerns about wanting to have an independent uh, commission for the police force to, to, to basically have some sort of public check on policing. Uh, that has yet to gain traction from the perspective of coming from the government itself. I think this is coming from civil society and more reform elements. Uh, but I do see uh, the fact that there has been acknowledgement of these two different uh, important uh, bureaucratic elements um, as a critical um, uh, pushback. Uh, but whether or not this is only touching the surface and how deep it goes to address it, the deep state, uh, I think is not so clear yet. Uh, the resistance inside the system takes three major forms. It takes the first form that it takes is, is an outright trying to undermine government policies. Uh, uh, and this happens through kind of stagnation, uh, other specific uh, efforts to kind of slow down the implementation process. Uh, the second thing that I see in terms of resistance is, is basically uh, you know, trying to counter the narratives. 
<laughs> and this happens within large parts of uh, the civil service and uh, other areas. Uh, and the third part of resistance happens with people continuing to practice the same politics, uh, and AKA, you know, uh, being being perceived as uh, not one to improve public service. <laughs> so it can be it can be political, and it can be in implementation, and it can also be in the, the nature of, of the way the bureaucracy operates. Uh, it is problematic because this government has inherited a highly politicized bureaucracy uh, full of appointees that feel that this is a prerogative position as opposed for public service. Uh, and it's full of norms that have really undermined governance. So to shift that uh, uh, is is actually involving multiple facets. Part of it is this restructuring, part of it is this reappointments, and then other steps that have to come in place have to do with changing norms and practices and, and clearly having priorities and agenda. And this is something that uh, most people in the public don't see what are the specific things of the new government's priorities uh, beyond the issues of 1MDB that I was talking about earlier. You mentioned a politicized bureaucracy. Uh, that sort of works both ways. Uh, I mean, you have a change of government, it could become politicized to become a, a tool of Pagadan Harapan rule and support its partisan interests. I mean, are there signs that uh, give you cause for concern? Not yet. Uh, in this area. I think many of the appointees uh, are coming from within the system. Uh, they are appointing people who were civil servants uh, or former civil servants. They brought people back from retirement, uh, people who were seen to be capable. Uh, they don't seem to be uh, consistently, especially in key appointments, uh, they, they don't seem to be political appointees and the emphasis on political. They, there's a lot more merit-based. And so even some of the more controversial appointments, such as the Attorney General like Tommy Thomas, was is a constitutional expert who has based on issues of merit. Uh, but at the local and state level, uh, there are some questions that these are basically uh, political actors that are being appointed as a point to as a point to people who are there. In some of the GLCs also there's a questions. Fostering more democratic governance in Malaysia basically implies taking powers away from executive government. Now that Pakatan is the executive government, it must be pretty tempting for a lot of people within the government to say, actually, you know what, I like having all these prerogatives. So, I mean, is there a sense that there's a camp within the administration that says, hang on, let's go slow on some of these institutional reforms? I would say not yet, uh, and I think it's still very early days yet. I mean, we all know the adage, power corrupts. And there are people who are have a very strong sense of themselves in this new government, um, and strong uh, egos uh, that, that, are, uh, that are very prominent. Uh, that said, I think uh, the key will be how many checks are being put in place. One of the most important checks, I think, of this new government was the fact that Mahathir chose not to take on a ministry. And that was, you know, uh, I think an important signal that was being sent uh, to that, you know, that the prime minister would be separate from holding any minister positions. I think that um, <clears throat> there has been a distribution and a restructuring of some of positions. Does this mean that uh, these people will not do anything to hold on to office and to hold on to power? Uh, it's politics. Uh, you're going to see clearly interests at play, and they're going to, and and whether or not you know, uh, I think how much separation there will be between uh, the new government and the potential abuses of their position remains to be seen. Right. So far, 
the message that has been sent is that uh, these things are not going to be tolerated. Uh, but, you know, it's difficult to change practices overnight given the incentives in the system. Uh, also, the nature of politics in Malaysia still is very highly elitist. There is a sense of entitlement. And you can see that the political jockeying for positions that this government engaged in and different actors shows that there, what the power issues were at play. Uh, I think it's going to be a really a matter of the public uh, and how much pressure they continue to put on the new government to make sure that these people remember that they're not there for themselves, but they're there for the Malaysian public. Of that public, only 51% actually voted for Pakatan Harapan. When it comes to that other 49%, uh, democratizers would like to expect that UMNO and the opposition is not treated as Pakatan was when it was in opposition. So, do you think that this Pakatan government can be trusted not to treat the present opposition the same way that it was treated when it was the opposition to Barisan Nasim? Actually, the number was 49%, depending on the math, how you round up and others, it's 48, 49% for this government, Pakatan. So they did not win a majority of the popular vote. They only won a, uh, the, the plurality of the popular vote. The rest of the opposition vote was split between PAS and AMNO and Warasan and other actors in that process. So stepping back, uh, I think we can only judge of what we've seen and how they treat the opposition. So far, UMNO is not an illegal party, uh, but its counts have been uh, affected. Uh, the former prime minister has been arrested and charged. This is something that UMNO would like to actually uh, use this as this idea of political victimization. I think what we're going to see in a very long, drown-out uh, trial is whether or not there is uh, what evidence is necessary in there um, and what whether or not uh, this is actually uh, you know follows the past or follow or which has been you know uh, politically fabricated uh, uh, evidence and, and highly politicized trial as happened uh, under Anwar Ibrahim for example uh, versus one that is actually much more um, uh, by the book and letting the evidence speak for itself I think that <coughs> The confrontational approach uh, of Najib's lawyers and his camp, and the, uh, uh, you know, they're trying to paint the narrative of political victimization. Whether or not that actually happens, I think we will have to see. But my own personal view is that the evidence will speak for itself. And I think that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that 1.1 billion ringgit worth of purchases raises very serious questions. And the fact that this man has been in politics for such a long time and, and has somehow is able to find that amount of money for his bail raises also questions. Uh, and, and so, you know, Malaysians uh, fully understand that what is happening here are very basic fundamentals uh, uh, in that process. But is UMNO going to face more charges and more interventions under this government? Um, I think part of it is, uh, is going to be as a result of their own tactics and strategies um, and part in the sense that they, they were very much part of a lot of the scandals. So this is going to come back to that. Another part of it has to do with the fact that the system itself is politicized. And so the more confrontational UMNO becomes, the more likely the confrontational approaches that are gonna respond. So uh, I think they don't have very much 
uh, alternative besides using race and religion. Uh, and so you're going to see a confrontational dynamic. Uh, and of course, that means that uh, there will be responses that will, will be in, in kind uh, from the perspective of, uh, uh, I think they will try to undermine the narrative of Amno. Um, uh, and I think what's the challenge for Pakatan is to create its own, own um, narrative and not allow the opposition to define how things are being perceived. And at least in the short term, Amno and the rest of the opposition may not be Prime Minister Mahathir's biggest worry. There's also the figure of Anwar Ibrahim. Now, uh, at the ANU recently, you mentioned that you were reasonably confident that Anwar would take over as Prime Minister uh, as per the pre-election agreement between himself and Mahathir. What's your feeling about that now? I mean, how has the relationship between these two men developed in the last couple of months? I think the narrative is one to paint that there's conflict between them, that they're different camps that supporting different individuals. Uh, I think that uh, uh, many of the actions of Anwar Ibrahim have not, uh, in terms of meeting with royal uh, royalty and others, have sent worrying signals to the public, and and, it, and it's not necessarily sent clear messages that he is in supporting the government reforms. Uh, I think that. My own sense is that the relationship will likely continue to be one where the turnover happens, but the burden lies with Anwar himself, uh, in the sense that uh, to be seen as a reformer and to not be engaging in challenging or undermining the government, uh, or to be seen to be undermining the government. Uh, and I think the media has been uh, uh, maybe overblowing some of these conflicts and issues. Um, and I think we have to judge actions, not uh, rumor and, and speculation. Uh, but I think that the, uh, fundamentally, politics shifts and changes. <laughs> I think there are going to be two very important developments uh, in between that. Uh, okay, number one is is how Mahathir himself is able to build his legitimacy through reforms. And number two, uh, how Anwar positions himself within those reforms itself. Uh, and I think uh, we're going to see this play out in the next uh, couple of years. That was Associate Professor Bridget Welsh from John Cabot University. Dado Shamsul Amri Baharuddin, or Shamsul AB, is Professor in Social Anthropology and the Director of the Institute for Ethnic Studies at University Kabangsaan, Malaysia. Over a long academic career, his work has touched on a whole range of topics in Malaysian politics and society. Dato Shamsul was also a senior member of the National Council of Professors, a body set up with the support of the former Najib government, and which has just been dissolved by the new Pakatan Harapan government. We talked to him about, among other things, some of the ideological constraints that'll guide the new government just as much as the old one, and some of the dynamics within Malay politics that will affect how the new government governs. Our interview with Shamsul was conducted by Dr. Ross Tapsul, who's the director of the ANU Malaysia Institute. Here's Ross speaking with Professor Shamsul A.B. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. In your opinion, what did Malaysians vote for in G14? I think basically Malaysians want a change of sort. But the question is, they don't know seriously what is this change going to be. And I think they are not homogeneous. The different groups of people expect different things. Uh, say that I, I'm going to use the terminology that we use in Malaysia, like B40. The B40 expects something else. A reduce of prices, reduce of 
cost of living, petrol. So those part of the manifesto in the government uh, now, our PH government or in the BN government before, for the B40 is clearly about their, uh, how, what affects its cost, cost yeah, of living. Can you explain what B40 is to us? It's basically uh, people who, who, who earn less than 3000 a month and has been receiving uh, funds from the government as, instead of the money paid for subsidy, the subsidy is taken off uh, and given cash directly. So that's why there was a time when BRIM was considered as a as a uh, as a corrupt practice by what now is a PH government, but now they are doing it, but they change the cost of living allowance. So you're painting a picture here, I guess, of a very transactional um, Malaysian voter. That you don't see a, a regime change here happening in in Malaysia. I wouldn't say regime change. Regime change is too big for me. The word I think it's basically a shift of a set of security guards, you know. Uh, we have Amno security guard before, now we have PS security guard. They are doing the same thing. Looking after the gate, and now the gatekeepers cannot give any, anything anymore yet, you know. In, in what ways are they the same, do you think? Well, for example, I think uh, one state, because we must, we must not forget there's state administration too, and there's federal administration. So in the terms of state administration, is the one where we see there's not much change. Because first of all, all these people who run the new state governments have no experience at all running state government. So they have to know what is a district, how does district operate, basic question like how many kilometers of the road has been resurfaced. They don't understand this. But to the daily life of people, this matters. Whether the road got a lot of holes or they are flat and smooth surface road. It seems very mundane uh, issues, but this is very important at that level. So I think uh, a lot of the politicians, mainly they are not local, and secondly, they are not from the B40. Their parents may be, but they're probably middle class. So they are urban people who are not serving. Uh, they are urban students who study overseas now come back and contest in the election. So I can, I've met a few of them, including the deputy ministers, they were not in Malaysia for a long time. So they are really joining a bandwagon which they're not very clear what is happening. But we have to give them time too. What do you think were the main reasons why uh, Najib uh, failed to gain support, particularly in Malay heartland areas? Well, I think he didn't fail in the Malay heartland area. He failed in the urban area where there are Malays too. See, they had to put it differently. Because I'm not get all his seats in the Malay area, so not in the urban seats. So, uh, and you have to see in terms of pass. You see how many pass has got? Say, pass. We forget pass has got Terengganu and Kelantan. Right. I mean, that's huge. You know. Right. It's a bit like Penang and Selangor. Right. In the Malay heartland. Okay. okay. So I think what I can see here is the personalized nature of the campaign, which has been conducted since mid. 2015, after Najib Sek, uh, Menteri Besar Kedah, uh, Mahathir's son, everything changed. Uh, yeah. Mukris Mahathir, Mukris you're talking Mahathir about there, son, Mahathir's yeah. son, yeah. right. So, so once Najib Sek, Mahathir's son, you feel like then it's open warfare between Mahathir well, and Najib. Well, I also learned, I don't know how far this is true, he should have won the 
the, pres the vice presidential election. So instead of Hishamuddin, he lost by nine votes. But actually, he should have won by three votes. Um, this is the kind of information that doesn't come out, but we know this is what happened. So essentially, do you think this is sort of Barisan Nasional 2.0? In some ways, it is. I mean, the number one leader is already a BN for 22 years. His life as a BN is longer than... Uh, so even without uh, ISA or emergency ordinance, he, he has other rules at his disposal. And you can, you can see now how 400 accounts are being frozen for what? Oh, one MDB. So there are keywords that are being used. This is uh, politics of idiom, I call it, you know. Uh, keywords are being used for reason of to do things. So uh, interesting for me. This is never before. I, could, I didn't see it ever before. You, you would remember um, Mahathir's time as Prime Minister and the systems of patronage which UMNO um, developed in that time. In what ways was the Najib era different from the Mahathir 1980s, 1990s era in terms of the way that they distributed um, their, their systems of patronage? The difference is the social context. The new economic policy was just new, less than 10 years when Mahathir became Prime Minister in 1981 you don't really see the results, okay? By the time he left, there was an uplift of substantial number of middle class, people into the middle class, especially the Malay bottom 40 that I mentioned earlier, uh, the people with lower income. They are educated, uh, spent billions of dollars educating them, working for Petronas, Kazana, all these big companies. So, so Najib is dealing with a different a group of people who are more savvy about uh, about stock market, about uh, making money, not because uh, the old group, I call it, they are more interested in accumulating land. Yeah, so you are rich because you got many many acres of land, but then they discover the children discover that you don't have to have land, you just have bank accounts, and you have a lot of shares, and then Amanah Saham was launched. So I think. Uh, the openness to financial uh, understanding and literacy uh, is the difference between Mahathir's uh, constituency and Najib's political constituency. Yeah. Um, the Western media and academics have often reported this change of government as good for democracy, as Anwar being a beacon of democracy. Have Western academics and writers got Anwar wrong? I think in some ways they have been blindly supporting Anwar without near knowing that there are a lot of undercurrent in the way Anwar runs things. You just check the YouTube, you can see who are against him and what do they tell you about who is Anwar. But you don't see that on Mahade, you don't see that on Najib. So What's your biggest concern for uh, the way that an Anwar government might operate? Well, I think I've seen how Anwar operates with PKR. He's going to operate the same like in PKR, where he make, he make promises with everybody, but he will not, he, you're not sure you're going to get what you get, even though he promised you something. Uh, and I think this is where the difficulty will, will lie, because people will uh, tell him, you know. And that Sodomy case doesn't go away. 
how do you think the Mahatya Anwar dynamic will play out in the next two, three years? Is it possible that Anwar will not be Prime Minister? Two, three possibilities. One, if Mahathir is still alive. We are talking about someone who is 93. So now in Malaysia, the big talk is uh, we should pension at 70 years old. And Anwar said, I can become Prime Minister because I have 20 more years. So, you know, this age has become a big joke in this country. So we shouldn't have this age uh, barrier anymore. You can be Prime Minister at 93, why can't you be a civil servant at 70? So it's fun, tongue-in-cheek, but I think people are uh, discussing this in a serious sense. So it, this, this is the first factor that affects Anwar, because Anwar will go around and talk about this man won't last long. He probably will last less than two years that he promised. Now what do we do? So I have to take action now, because I'm the only one that he thought is good enough. Uh, so he will use Okay. The second factor is there are reformacy group within PKR not very happy still. And Anwar has not managed to tame them. They're still all over the country. Why are they unhappy? Because Mahade is not part of the reformacy agenda. Reformacy is reformacy Mahade. So Mahade is here. What is he doing? He's not doing reformacy. So, you know, it's uh, internal. So, and then, of course, the Islamic issue. How is Anwar going to play this Islamic issue? He has got all these uh, leaders from the Middle East who seem to be like Erdogan and all this. So he's playing the card too. What do the DAP and all these things? Unless he can promise you keep your whatever and I'll play my, with my friends in, the, in, the, in Qatar and everywhere else. So, and in Qatar, uh, the leader of the uh, Muslim group, uh, Qardawi, and Qardawi is in Qatar, and Qatar is isolated in the Middle East. So, how do you, I mean, at that level, I cannot imagine how he can influence all the Middle East and support me, please. No, uh, because he's playing Saudi, he's playing Qatar. What is he playing uh? Let's talk a bit about UMNO. Um, yeah. What do you think UMNO, what is their strategy for the next uh, two, three years? How does UMNO recover from the, the shock election defeat? Well, I, I think what UMNO is doing now is to uh, riding on the fact that you join UMNO, you are in UMNO now and we want to go on, there's no reward. No financial reward? No financial reward. So do you want to join? Yes. What do we do? Ah, so it's a different. So that's a good thing, I guess. Uh, yes, yeah. there's a different approach altogether. So you're going to get more ideologues yeah. rather than people there for systems yeah. of patronage and I money think politics. So. I right. think so. And this and, is and where. And what kind of ideologues will we see? In, well, in it's not, I don't see ideological. It's still Malay. It's still, I still believe that the Malay-led plural society is the model in this country. Even Pakatan Harapan is the leader. They cannot change the Malay-led plural society for demographic factor reason and also for political organization reason. So uh, it's a bit tough. So I don't see any ideology in the in the simple sense of political science, you know, being the driving force. No. Uh, the Bumi Putra policy and the discussions internally in Pakistan Harapan about that policy. How do you see that unfolding uh, in the next few years? They have talked about this. They have talked about this. It's just a matter of how are they going to implement it? I don't see 
You see, I'm going to reiterate by saying it's a Malay-led uh, political uh, nation, I would call it, you know. So that hasn't changed, that formula. Bumi Putra policies attached to that. So you want to change Bumi Putra, you have to change that. And I don't see how they can change that. So they can have the rhetoric of change, but what essentially, just, see, one of the issue, big issues now is by the rural folks is that uh, they want to close, they want to open Mara, they want to give scholarship to the non-Malays. This is a big issue. So, oh, I didn't vote for this. Ah, suddenly they realise. What do you think would be the biggest concern for Malaysia if the Bumi Putra policy was abandoned? Why would that be such a bad thing? It's not a bad thing as far as the... Uh, the, the see, the whole issue is... The word equality cannot be applied to Malaysia. It's always equity. Because the population is not... There's no one dominant like Singapore, like in Australia. Yeah? There's no one dominant group that can tell you we must be equal on this, this, this. In Malaysia, you can't. That's why the existence is a coalition. It's not existence of one dominant party. Even some even some UMNO uh, politicians like Kari Jamaluddin said we need to move away from the sort of ethnic politics of the past. You, you can't see that happening? I don't see that. As long as the Malay-dominated plural society model, how do you move away from, from Malay being the dominant? Even though they are split. Huh? They are split, whatever. But none of them actually says that we must abolish this. I didn't hear Pakatan Harapan, especially in PKR, doesn't say this, but Satu worse still. So I don't see this discussion. You may talk about Bumi Putra policy, but what is deeper inside that is not Bumi Putra policy. It's the, the agreement since 1948 to have a Malay-led plural society, which the British chose instead of us. Where would the biggest resistance come from if uh, there was even just talk about abandoning the Bumi Putra policy? I don't think there will be very much talk in the sense of general discourse. What will happen with specific policies being affected? Then, the talk is about specific policies. Just like the discussion on the EUC now. It's Chinese Independent School Certificate. Right. So it's being said that right. this shouldn't be recognised because they have no content, Malaysian content at all. So the education battle will be front and centre of this debate yeah. in the next few years. And then that will play out through each sector, I see. Yeah. Yes. Thanks very much for talking to us. Welcome. That was Professor Shamsul A.B. speaking with the ANU's Dr. Ross Tapsell. Our thanks to Bridget Welsh and to Shamsul for making the time to speak with us. Make sure to check out the previous episodes in this series of podcasts on the new Malaysia. You can listen to those at SoundCloud or get them at the New Mandala website. And if you are listening to this at SoundCloud or at the New Mandala site, remember that you can also subscribe to all of our audio releases at iTunes or through the Apple Podcast app. Just do a search for New Mandala. Thanks for listening.